0: Hello and welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry
1: and I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 113, Pope Formosis. Yes, that ah, Formos. we made it, <laughs> and I know. I know what you are waiting for when you pop onto this episode, but remember, this is the life of Pope Formosus, and he does have, so much is made about his, his death, and very little about his life, but he's had a very interesting life, and we've seen some of that, so this is the episode of his life. He's
0: been about yeah. all over the place. He's got his friends. <laughs> he's got his friends, Kramer and George.
1: And, and Elaine. Yeah. And, and we said Putty and, and and Jerry's there. Oh, Formosus is Jerry. That's what it is. Yeah. So we're going to have... This is going to be a very interesting episode, even though we are going to cover what happens to his body after he's dead When when that actually happens. So... I also want to acknowledge that with this episode, that while we don't have the Liber Pontificalis anymore, we do have a new source that is going to be relatively useful for the next quite long while. So I would like to introduce the very dramatic Lietprand of Cremona. We are going to be dealing with Lietprand quite a lot, or Lutprand, as it's sometimes said. What?
0: Where's he What who is this man and why does he have an awful name?
1: <laughs> Lutprand is the bishop of Cremona. He is a very prominent 10th century chronicler. And he's going to start popping up now, but we're actually going to get to a point in the sources later on where he's going to show up as a contemporary person in the narrative. And um oh my gosh, he just he's so full of salt for everything. So, yeah. He's going to be a lot of fun for the next. Well, actually, for the next year, he'll pop in and out. So get ready for that. Lutbrand. Lutbrand. <laughs> Lutbrand. L-I-U-T-P-R-A-N-D. Bishop of Cremona. So digging into Formosus. Formosus was born around 816. And his father's name was Leo. And although sources are practically non-existent about his early life, we can assume that he was born into the nobility of Rome. This is actually a pretty solid inference that we can make, given that one, he becomes Pope, and two, because we know about his social circle from previous episodes, the Seinfeld Cruel. And at some point, he entered the church, and in 864, he was made the Cardinal Bishop of Porto by Pope Nicholas, which means that he must have been impressive and capable because the Bishopric of Porto is traditionally one of the bishops who assist with the consecration of the Pope, along with the primary Bishop of Ostia and the Bishop of Velatria. So, it's not just any bishopric. This is a fairly significant position. And 2 years after being made bishop, Formosus was appointed by Pope Nicholas to be the legate to King Boris and the Bulgars after their conversion to Christianity and the first rift with the Eastern Church. Formosus was charged with delivering Pope Nicholas's very in-depth responses to Boris's questions about Christianity and to stay on and advise Boris in the Christianization of the whole of the Bulgar people. And as we know and have already covered, Formosus did exceptionally well in this role and made such an impression on Boris that the king wrote to the Pope specifically requesting that Formosus stay and become the Archbishop of the Bulgars, which remember, Boris definitely wanted to be on like the same level as the patriarchates. He wanted his archbishop to be like a big deal. But there was the obvious problem, right? Formosus was already a bishop consecrated to another see, another important see, the bishopric of Porto. And a bishop cannot move or transfer sees, and they certainly can't hold two at the same time so far away. So what Boris wanted was canonically impossible and put the pope in an uncomfortable position, given that Boris's reaction to rejection is generally changing allegiances. Now, unfortunately, with this, we don't really get any personal reflection here, about whether this was something that Formosus himself actually wanted, or whether he influenced the king to make this request on his behalf. We do know that Formosus is a very ambitious man, and being archbishop of an entire peoples was going to be bigger than just being a bishop that got to consecrate the pope. So it's entirely possible that this is something that he was whispering in Boris's ear about, despite knowing that it couldn't or shouldn't be done. But it's equally, if not more possible, that Formosus was already aspiring to be Pope, and so this just came from Boris himself, and Formosus wouldn't have encouraged it, because he wants to go back to Rome and actually be Pope. But we don't know for sure because all we get is Boris asking Pope Nicholas to make it so and Nicholas trying to diplomatically recall Formosus to Rome to avoid saying no to Boris right away, hoping to divert Boris's fervor and enthusiasm on a new missionary. Here is a new person. Hopefully you will like him as much as you like the last guy and you'll want him to be your archbishop. Now, unfortunately, even when replacements were sent to the Bulgars, Boris was not having it, and continued to press the issue of bringing Formosus back. And the new pope, Hadrian II, had to officially decline and explain that a bishop shifting sees would be ecclesiastically bigamous. And this... As we know, caused Boris to do exactly what they feared, and he broke with the Pope and the Western Church, shifting his allegiance back to the Patriarch of Constantinople. So, not great. But Formosus is back in Rome, and despite being at the center of a major conflict that cost the Pope a massive amount of converts, It doesn't seem to have affected Formosus himself in any sort of negative way. Instead, it just proved that he was a capable politician who was clearly incredibly persuasive, which would be useful if put in the right situation. The popes see an opportunity here, so they continue to use Formosus as a papal legate, and he was sent to the Franks this time, on two important envoys. So first, in 869, he was sent by Pope Hadrian II to compel Lothair back to his wife, Tutberga. But Lothair had died before Formosus got anywhere close to his capital, and this might be a good thing, considering that it seems that Lothair was taken out by a pandemic that killed many of his men. And so if if Formosus had gotten there and gotten sick and died, we would, again, not have this crazy, crazy papal history to talk about. What'd they get sick out of? Yeah, a full pandemic, like some kind of fluxing fever. Okay. And then second, he was sent by Pope John VIII to invite Charles the Bald to come to Rome to be crowned as the new emperor following the death of Louis II. But this second one is where things get a little complicated, because although Formosus was one of the legates coming to convey the Pope's support for Charles the Bald as emperor and arrange the coronation, there are sources that suggest that Formosus might have personally opposed Charles and wanted Louis the German to be emperor instead. And in this, he wouldn't be alone, right? There are prominent Romans who also want to see Louis the German become emperor. And around this point that the Pope is looking to make Charles the Bald the emperor, we do have several nobles who are leaving Rome when it becomes clear that Charles will be emperor. Now. Notably, a lot of these nobles who are leaving, claiming that they're leaving because they support Louis the German, are also Formosus's Seinfeld friends that we discussed, who are <laughs> causing <laughs> havoc in Rome. So, are they leaving to save themselves from being held to account, or are they leaving because, oh, we're, we're Bavarian supporters, that's, that's what it's all about. So, going back... Two Formosus's friends. Do you remember them all? Oh. Mm. Mm.
0: I don't know their real names.
1: <laughs> well, we're gonna go over them. So we have Gregory the Primisarius and his brother Stephen the Secondarius, who are embezzlers. Mm-hmm. So that would be like a like a Kramer and a Newman, I guess. <laughs> Then Kramer and Newman. They seem the type that would get involved in some sort of embezzlement scheme. Mm-hmm. Then we have Stephen's son-in-law, George of the Aventine. George. George, <laughs> who had the summer of George murdering his brother for his mistress and then married and murdered the niece of Pope Benedict the 3rd. So much murder <laughs> happened, and he got away with all of it. He did. Then we have Sergius, who married Pope Nicholas's niece and then robbed Pope Nicholas while he was dying. I think we said Putty because he was the only other Seinfeld character I can think of.
0: (laughs) But I don't
1: feel like Putty's that
0: mean, though. Uh, Yeah, Putty's just dumb, so I don't know. Just stupid.
1: He would have done it by accident. Oops. If you're robbing the Pope while he's dying, maybe you're just really stupid. I don't know. (laughs) And then we have Constantina Elaine, who had committed various acts of adultery and bigamy. So these are the people, of course, that Pope John VIII is cracking down on, who, when summoned to answer for their crimes, robbed the church and fled Rome. And these are now the people saying that the reason that they're leaving is that they are Bavarian supporters who are citing fear of reprisal for their political opinions. Now, where Formosus himself, where Jerry fits into this situation is a little unclear, because one version of accounts suggests that after delivering the Pope's invite to Charles the Bald, he simply just didn't come back to Rome, because he doesn't support this, so he's just going to stay away. And in other accounts, he was with his friends while they were looting the church, and then fled with them. So, you know, a little bit more guilty, which also might change the motive of why he fled, right? Why why is Formosus leaving Rome? Is it genuine opposition of Charles the Bald or is it I have a bunch of dealing with my criminal friends and need to get out of here. We can't be sure. But in either case, what is absolutely clear is that John saw Formosus as a threat to his papacy. Formosus had opposed his election. Formosus was a remarkably capable diplomat. And Formosus had powerful friends that wouldn't hesitate to commit crimes. And Formosus may also be against him in his coronation of Charles the Bald. So for literally every reason, Formosus is a problem for Pope John. And so he calls a synod and Formosus is deposed on charges of abandoning his see-slash-desertion of his diocese, for making uncanonical agreements with King Boris, and for conspiring against Charles the Bald and the papacy. Pope John VIII also declared that he would be excommunicated if he did not appear in Rome before the pope to stand trial within three weeks of this declaration going out. But of course, as we know, Formosus did not come, and he was thusly excommunicated. Now, whether or not that was going to stick is pretty clear, because the excommunication was amended to merely a deposition at the 878 Council of Troy when Pope John VIII came to France, but only under the condition that Formosus swore never to return to Rome or carry out ecclesiastical duties. So even he felt bad about the excommunication and just decided banishment and deposition was good enough. But then, Pope John was murdered in 882. And what... Oh. Yeah, remember? Yeah. This was the surprise murder. the stabby. (laughs) The poisoning and then the bludgeoning and the, yeah. Where did that come from? Yes. And what part we think Formosus played in his death is definitely going to feature in our prohibitum category. Many historians are very confident in claiming that he was involved, which would make sense if he if the murder was plotted by all of his friends. It's not a good look. But whether he was guilty or innocent of being involved in John's murder, at the time of John's death, Formosus is still in exile. So he's definitely not about to be elected as the next pope. He's far away. He's oh, He doesn't even have a church role right now. So instead, we have Pope Marinus elected, and he becomes the first already consecrated bishop to become pope, which is setting a precedent that will benefit Formosus greatly later on. But even better than just setting a precedent, Marinus had a very different view of Formosus than John had had, And one of his literal first acts as Pope is to recall Formosus and restore him to his bishopric. We speculated at the time why he might have done this. You know, he might have been trying to calm the conflict of the Roman nobility to reduce the threat to himself. Or he might have actually been an ally of Formosus's from before. But what we can definitely take away from this, and the fact that this is one of his very first acts, is that after several years of being out of the city of Rome, Formosus was still a massively influential figure that is setting the tone of the political landscape in the city, that is making the Pope go, hmm, maybe I need this guy back. So, that's great for Formosus. He becomes the Bishop of Porto again. And during the next few papacies, we don't hear a whole lot about him. He was no longer being used as a papal legate, but in the background, we can assume he was reestablishing himself in his duties and, more importantly, shoring up his local support. Because Formosus did still have a lot of support and a lot of influential friends Beyond the ones who had left the city. Because after the death of Pope Stephen V, Formosus was then elected to be the next Pope on October 6th, of 891. However, this was not a unanimous election. Ooh! Oh yes. Hotly contested. In the work I mean, he's a bad guy. He's he's been communicated lots of people are still hostile or at very least suspicious
0: for him were they joke voting Uh, let's write down for moses
1: no no he just had enough friends in the nobility who were like hey we like it when we can do very corrupt things in the city it would be helpful if this man was pope now In the words of Bartolomeo Platina, quote, He came to the popedom rather by bribery than for the sake of any good that was in him. (laughs) Many men opposing his election. So, maybe he's also bribing people. Maybe. Now, (laughs) our new salty source, Leoprand of Cremona, suggests that this hostility went further, and that this election was, like, very contested. So... He says, the cause of the animosity between Pope Formosus and the Romans was this. When Formosus's predecessor had died, it was certain a deacon Sergius of the Roman church, whom a certain part of the Romans had elected as its popes. Another part, and not a tiny one, wanted the bishop of the city of Porto called Formosus to be made pope for his true faith and knowledge of heavenly doctrines. And when the time came for Sergius to be ordained, Vicar of the Apostles, that part which supported the faction of Formosus drove Sergius from the altar with tumult and great insult and made Formosus pope. So according to Leopran, we had a very narrowly missed anti-pope moment. But we have to take that with a grain of salt because later historian Horace K. Mann claims that Leoprand has confused Formosus's election with the later events of Pope Sergius III and Pope John IX. So, maybe no anti-pope <sighs> at
0: all. <laughs> People are just uh, getting yeah. confused up in here.
1: Then there is the account of Eugenius Vulgarius, who claims that Formosus refused the election and fled when they attempted to consecrate him and had to be dragged back by the altar cloth that he clung to. And I don't buy this even a little bit. Even if it was for show, Formosus absolutely wanted to be Pope, so there's no way he protested and ran away when they tried to consecrate him. Oh no, I don't want to be the Pope, that's a lie. It's such a lie! Like, he clearly wanted this more than anything. So, he is now Pope, he has now succeeded in that ultimate goal. And soon after being consecrated, Formosus was faced with an important question over the Patriarchate of Constantinople. And once again, this is because of Photius. Ah, back to him. Um, yeah. Now, as we covered in our last episode, Photius had been deposed for the final time and exiled by the new emperor, Leo VI who then installed his brother Stephen as the new patriarch. So it's not like he's coming back and trying to take the role again. He is actually gone. And there also seems to be no point of contention over the fact that the emperors just installed his brother. Everyone seems to be okay with that. But the major concern was that Pope Stephen V had annulled all the ordinations that were conducted by Photius right you know he was not the legitimate patriarch he is deposed and so all of his ordinations are annulled which was now really complicating things in the east because photius had ordained a lot of clerics in the time that he'd been patriarch because he'd been patriarch and recognized patriarch in the east and sometimes recognized patriarch in the west for quite a while so nullifying all of these ordinations would have set the whole of the Eastern Church. They probably didn't have many legitimately ordained clerics if you take away all the ones that Photius made. So, Stylanios, the bishop of Caesarea, and several other prominent Eastern clerics had appealed to Pope Formosus to recognize the ordinations. Like, hey, this is going to upset everything can we just all come to an agreement that we all want to be part of the church we all keep our roles and we move on from here and Formosus is like no I'm gonna be really obstinate about this so he (laughs) cites the first eighth ecumenical council of 869 which is the the first fourth council of Constantinople which declared that Photius had never been canonically consecrated, and therefore had not ever been patriarch. And so, he determined that while layman appointments by Photius were fine, all of the clerical ordinations by Photius are being nullified, I'm not making an exception. We have his own words in his response, where he says, quote, You ask for mercy, but you do not explain how and for whom, whether for a layman or a priest. If you mean a layman, he deserves pardon, as he received a dignity from a layman. But if you mean a priest, you overlook the fact that one who has no dignity cannot impart any to others. For those ordained by Photius, this is our merciful verdict. They will have to present the libelli with the acknowledgement of their sin and to ask pardon by their penance with the promise never to commit it again. This being done, your holiness will see to the rest, in obedience to our orders and in agreement with the legates above mentioned, without any addition or alteration whatsoever. Once they have been received in communion of the faithful as laymen by ourselves and by your reverence, the scandal will be removed. This done, if any of them should refuse to hold communion with you, let him know that he would likewise be severed from our communion. So, nope, they have to go all the way back to laymen, they have to do some penance because they've committed a great sin by being ordained by a man who was never patriarch, and then they'll have to start all over. So, it's petty, it's going to upset the whole church. Now, however, Francis Dvornick's The Photian Schism indicates that this decision by Formosus wasn't really practically applied or carried out in Constantinople, but it also didn't lead to another schism. They weren't abjectly ignoring what he said. They just sort of seemed to have hand-waved a lot of that penance that the clerics were supposed to do to be rehabilitated. Oh yeah, they definitely did all of that. Sure. Mhm. And that's about as much involvement as Formosus is going to have with the East, which makes sense because things in the West were far more chaotic and far more pressing. Where we last left the empire was when we had Emperor Charles the Fat being deposed in 887 and the empire being divided up between Arnulf who is now King of East Francia, Count Odo of Paris, who is King of West Francia, Bozo, King of Provence, and Guy of Spoleto, who had expediently become the new emperor, mainly because Pope Stephen V couldn't get Arnulf to come to Italy to be crowned instead. So Formosus does not trust Emperor Guy of Spoleto at all. And this was not without reason. Because aside from the fact that Spoleto had always been troublesome, Guy had already proven himself to be dangerous. He'd already led a rebellion against Charles the Fat, and Guy's brother, Lambert, was the Lambert that had pillaged Rome after Pope Hadrian II's election. Yeah, so like, he's already not off to a great start with the papacy. His kingdom also bordered directly on the Papal States, and what's more, he has this habit of allying with the Saracens, the biggest threat to the papacy, who are still actively invading part of the Papal States. Yeah, okay. So it's not It's not great. This is not a good relationship. He's not somebody you can rely on to, you know, defend your borders or, you know recognize the sanctity of the papal states and the city of Rome. It's just not looking good. And given that Formosus has connections with powerful nobles throughout Italy, there might have also been a personal element between them. But we don't know this as fact, it's just sort of speculation. But in either case, Formosus decides he's going to undermine the emperor and fortify alliance and support against him. He particularly seeks alliance with Berengar, the Duke of Friuli and Guy's biggest rival in Italy, and with Arnulf, the initially desired emperor. This is who we wanted first, so I would still like to have him. So let's ally against the current emperor. Oh boy. The Annals of Fulda tell us, quote, The Legates of Pope I Fr- say I almost said Pope Francis.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the Legates of Pope Francis.
1: They're here. Traveling in time. (laughs) (laughs) Legates of Pope Formosus came to King Arnulf in Bavaria with letters, accompanied by the leading men of the Italian kingdom, begging urgently that he should come and take into his own hands from those evil Christians the affairs of St. Peter and of the Italian kingdom. At that time, the tyrant Guido was principally attempting to do this. The king received them with honor at the city of Regensburg and allowed them to depart with gifts after agreeing to what had been requested. So he goes, yeah, I'll come. To being emperor, that sounds pretty sweet. But Arnulf was in Bavaria and Guy was in Italy and still held the upper hand on every front. And perhaps he was a little bit smarter than they gave him credit for because he sort of senses that pieces are moving against him. And he formerly compels Pope Formosus to recognize him as emperor and crown his son Lambert as his co-emperor in Ravenna on April 30th of 892. And this is interesting because, again, we see the importance of the pope being involved in the process of crowning an emperor. It's, It's so important to have the pope do the coronation That when he senses that his support is going to be a little shaky or there's going to be movement against him, Guy is going to force the Pope to crown his son because, ha, look, the Pope has been forced to recognize that I am legitimate. But clearly being forced to recognize Guy and forced to crown his son as co-emperor chafed Formosus hard. And though he had done the consecration, he did not in any way let up his appeals to Arnulf and wrote to him again, inviting him to Rome to depose Guy and be crowned as emperor himself. Again, we quote from the Annals of Fulda. Arnulf was again asked urgently by Pope Formosus through letters and messengers to come to Rome. The king, when he had decided with the advice of his bishops to give satisfaction to this demand, sent an army in the month of October from Francia and Alemania into Italy. So he's coming, and he's coming with an army. Oh, Lord, he coming. Oh, Lord, he coming. And his army is coming into Italy, led by his son, Zwentibold. <laughs> Zwentibold. Zwentibold. Sweatyballs? balls. Sweaty Balls. <laughs> Zwentibold with a Z. <laughs> it's a great name. I knew you'd love it.
0: Uh, all right, son. Sweaty Balls is coming.
1: <laughs> so Sweaty Balls enters Italy and quickly occupies the majority of the territory above the Po River and starts to progress south. Additionally, Arnulf allied with Berengar who pledged to serve as a vassal to Arnulf if Guy was overthrown, which is great because, of course, Berengar and Guy hate each other. And so together, Arnulf and Berengar defeat Guy's forces at Trento. Now, interestingly, Guy wasn't captured or deposed at this time, even though he was defeated. And there's some suggestion that he might have bought Berengar and Zwentebold off. Or paid, like, just enough ransom for himself to get them to leave him alone, even though that's why they're there? But it's short-lived, and in the beginning of the next year, 894, Arnulf personally joins his army, and they take Bergamo, Trento, Pavia, and Milan, which effectively meant defeat for Guy. Arnulf was declared the king of Italy, and Guy went into retreat, but before he could regroup, he died suddenly on December 12th of 894. So oh. he's now, yeah, he's, he's out of the picture now. Arnulf has successfully taken everything over. But this does not mark the end of the conflict because Guy had a teenage son, Lambert, the one that Formosus has just been forced to crown co-emperor. And he also happened to have a super tenacious wife called Ageltrude. And so when Guy died, Lambert assumed the full title of emperor with his mother as his regent. And they meant to hold on to this title. So Ageltrude and Lambert head straight for Rome with what forces still remained to them. Assuming that once they arrived, the Pope would continue to recognize Lambert as the emperor that he had crowned himself, right? We're just going to mm-hmm. show up. We're going to play on that legitimacy card. But this did not happen. And their arrival in Rome was met with Formosus's refusal to confirm Lambert as emperor. Because he absolutely and totally intended on crowning Arnulf when he arrived. Nope, that didn't happen. I want that guy still, so bye bye. And Egeltrude is furious. Oh, he, uh, yeah, she would be. <laughs> yeah, and she commands her forces to take the city of Rome. So they do. And Formosus was imprisoned in the Castel San Angelo the gates of the city were shut down and fortified with guards, intent on keeping Arnulf out long enough to compel Formosus into officially recognizing Lambert and conducting a full coronation. Nope. Oh, you're not going to recognize us? Great, you're in jail now until you say otherwise. But on February 21st, 896, Arnulf arrived in Rome and stormed Ageltrude's defenses to take the city. And again, we get an account from the annals of Fulda. Quote, Without delay, they came to the wall, drove the defenders off by throwing stones, and a mass of men hurled itself on the gates. Some attacked the gates and their iron bars with swords and clubs. Others dug through the wall. Others climbed the wall with ladders. And thus, by God's providence, the strongest and most noble of cities was nobly stormed in triumph as the day drew towards evening, with no one from so great an army of the king's side falling, and the pope and the city freed from their enemies. So, pope is freed, and Lambert and Egeltrude flee to Spoleto. So Formosus and Arnulf met at the Basilica of Santi Apostoli, and the next day, on February 22nd, 896, Arnulf was anointed and consecrated as the emperor at St. Peter's. Continuing that account, quote, Now the pope received the king with fatherly love before the porch in that place, which is called the Steps of St. Peter, and conducted him joyfully with honor of the church, Of the holy princes of the apostles, and following the example of his predecessors, gave him imperial coronation by placing a crown upon his head and calling him Caesar and Augustus. So, very successful for both Formosus and Arnulf. And after receiving a public pledge of fealty from the people of Rome at St. Paul's outside the walls and securing some new imperial missi in the city, Arnulf left Rome and headed for Spoleto, where Lambert and Egeltrude had fled. But, on his way, Arnulf had a major stroke and was left paralyzed. Oh, jeez. Yeah, so very short-lived. And some sources, by the way, of course, suggest that Egeltrude managed to poison him because, of course, wicked women all the time. So Arnulf is now forced to return to Bavaria to recuperate, but it's not looking great for him. Now, this is as far as things went in Formosus's papacy, because on April 4th, 896, Pope Formosus died around the age of 80. He was then buried in the portico of St. Peter's. But clearly, this is not the end of his story, and we will be coming back to the poor deceased Formosus very soon. (laughs) Later. Yeah, later. We're going to cover that story. But for now, what we will say is that after the absolute wild journey that his body is going to go on, he was finally reinterred in St. Peter's by Pope Theodore II. His tomb was then, unfortunately, destroyed for New St. Peter's. However, his epitaph has been recorded. But it is a bit unclear if it was constructed at the time of his initial burial, or whether it was constructed when he was reburied by Pope Theodore II. But it reads, Formosus the bishop, distinguished with high praises, pious, frugal, and bountiful to the needy, is carried up. He scattered the seeds of faith to the Bulgarian people, destroyed pagan shrines, drew up his people in array with heavenly arms as he endured countless dangers, resolute, showing example, so that adversity might be overcome and no trouble might be rendered to whoever leads a good life. Now, one final point from Leoprand of Cremona. He tells us that when Formosus's body was reinterred at St. Peter's for the final time, quote, certain images of saints greeted him reverently when he was placed in the tomb. For this fact I heard repeated very often by very observant men of the city of Rome. But now, forgetting these things, let us return to the order of the narrative. So, I just absolutely cannot not mention that, like, the saints in St. Saint Peter started to move and greet Formosus when his body came back, so. Were they greeting him or were they telling him to Get out. Oh, they were greeting him reverently, so they were like, Ah, oh, he's come back where he's supposed to be. Moving saint icons. Miracles. <laughs> but that is for Moses, and now it is time to rate him.
0: All right. Papatum and Phallium.
1: So... Nothing super major here. It's, it's kind of interesting because he does more for the papacy before he's actually pope. So in and we are going to consider that because he does have an incredible impact on the Bulgars who are willing to convert and make or break their allegiance to the pope based on his interactions with them. He's also a useful papal legate in, in very impactful moments in papal history, like the divorce of Lothair and Charles the Bald's coronation. And he also is responsible for a little bit of other church intervention. So just quickly, he settled a jurisdictional dispute between the Archbishop of Cologne, Hermann, and the Archbishop of Hamburg, Adelgard. This was over the Sea of Bremen, which had been joined to Hamburg by Pope Nicholas in 845 after the city of Hamburg had been destroyed in a Danish raid. So then Hamburg-Bremen became its own diocese, independent of Cologne, which became a point of contention. So after an appeal and an investigation and a meeting with the bishops in Frankfurt, Formosus ruled that Bremen and Hamburg would remain joined. He also chastised the Archbishop Fulk of Reims for overstepping his jurisdictional authority to appoint bishops to sees, quote, like a benefice. So he didn't like that uh, Fulk was bestowing bishoprics like favors. Mm. And of course, we need to consider this. Yes, it happens after his death, but what happens to him becomes such a complex legacy for the church. Like, we just. We cannot overstate that Formosus, even though his papacy is kind of whatever, is going to have an impact on the papacy for like a hundred years beyond this point. So, I, I want to give a quick little quote from Bartolomeo Platina, which is about a later pope, much later on, but gives you an idea of how far the impact of Formosus reached. Quote In our own time, Paul II, a Venetian, had liked to have taken upon him the name of Formosus, which would have been agreeable enough to him, being a proper man of a venerable aspect, but that the cardinals, remembering this story, dissuaded him, lest that should happen to him after his death, which did to this Formosus. So literally, we're talking in the 1400s, a pope is dissuaded from taking the name Formosus because of what happens. You cannot be him. You cannot be him. So there is a legacy to consider. So this is going to be a tough category to rate because that's not a good legacy. But no, like, uh, we have God. the Bull We have good uh-huh. leg at work. We have some jurisdictional intervention. And then we have this... Can I give him, like, an eight? You want to give him, like, an eight? Ooh. I mean, yes, it's impact, isn't it? You could. Ooh. I don't know. It's bad impact, though, so... Oh, yeah. I know. (laughs) It's hard. It's a hard one. It's a very...
0: A seven? (laughs) A four? (laughs) Where do I want to go
1: here? Okay, so I am... I would probably give him some really good points for the Bulgar situation because that... The Bulgars were great. That's, that's great. We're seeing him do some massively good work for the church and obviously very capable, doing a great job, awesome work as a legate in that regard. So it would probably be like a, I want to say like a six, but then that, that that lasting legacy is just so bad that I'm knocking it down to like a three. <laughs> <laughs>
0: But you can give right, him an eight we, if you want, because, you know. Let's give him, like, a four. Okay. Oh, my God. So, I, I think, I'm pretty sure we gave someone, like, four points for the Bulgars already. That's, like, the base for the Bulgars
1: here. <laughs> Which makes sense, because Nicholas gets the credit for the actual conversion at that time, at least for that mm-hmm. moment. But yeah, Formosus was doing great work. It was mostly not during his papacy. So I think a relatively low score in the shadow of, oh, what's to come? Yeah, a seven seems fair.
0: Fructus prohibits him.
1: So. Ten. Well, well, is it his? Well, actually, we can credit him for many things in this category without what happens to him after he dies. So, ten George,
0: George, the summer of George.
1: Exactly. So first off, let's start a little bit lighter. The Bulgars, right? If Formosus was in agreement with King Boris about asking the Pope to make him the archbishop, then Formosus is willfully prepared to break canon law about a bishop and his see. So, not great. Ambition, not working for him. He was then deposed and excommunicated for charges, including robbing the church. Mm -hmm. And then did he play, like with all of his criminal friends, did he have a hand to play in the death of Pope John VIII? He's Jerry. He had to have. Yeah, he was a rival of John's for the whole of his papacy. John had excommunicated him. Most sources do agree that he had conspired against John many times and may have actually even directly bribed the killer to carry out the murder. Bartolomeo Platina suggests that Formosus may have even conspired with Carloman of Bavaria, who raided Rome and held Pope John VIII prisoner. So, like, he might have been plotting a lot. And he may have also been involved in some fairly vicious behavior with Arnulf. See, Leoprand of Cremona tells us that when Arnulf came to Rome, quote, at that time, the most observant Pope Formosus was being vigorously tormented by the Romans. And upon his insistence, King Arnulf came to Rome. At his entrance, he ordered many Roman nobles who were hastening to confront him to be beheaded to avenge the harm done to the Pope. So... This is Arnulf acting, but on behalf of the Pope, he's having people executed. And then, yeah, we could give him all of the extra points he needed, really, for the Cadaver Synod. But I think it's an easy 10. <laughs> easy 10. Easy 10. Without being dead. Even without, being, even without the Synod, he, he's definitely going to get a 20 in this category.
0: It's not good. Seculari impactum.
1: This, again, is, is a tough one. Because he's literally one of the most famous popes in history. <laughs> there is there is so much secular. It's not great impact. No, it's so bad. It's poopy. It's it's one. Ba- well, hang on. It's a it's bad, <laughs> but we want to talk about it, right? Like there is. As we will see in an episode in our near future, there are so many renditions of these moments that make it into Broadway and TV and all sorts of popular media. So he is impacting the secular population in 2022. I know, but I don't like it. (laughs) And then we also must consider it in his own time. He's constantly at the mercy of secular leaders. He's forced by Guy of Spoleto to crown his son. Agletrude and Lambert are able to take the city and hold him prisoner. He, he, yeah, he does crown two emperors, but he's sort of undoing his own work there as well. I mean, on his own, it's not a good impact, but you don't like it, so you can rate it any way you like.
0: One. <laughs> You're one. gonna give him a one. Okay,
1: I'm, He's stinky. <laughs> Oh, boy, is he ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I am going to have to score him high here. So if you're going to give him a one, I'm going to give him a nine. And he'll get a ten in this category. Because trust me, the entire time that we've been working on this podcast, people have been like, oh, I can't wait till you get to formosis. Ooh,
0: ooh. I can't so. wait. I can't <laughs> wait. I can't wait for Formosus. Formosus. Have you heard of formosis? Yes.
1: Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and when people tell me they're excited for episodes, it's either Formosis and, of course, Stephen the Sixth by by conjunction there, and then of course Alexander the Sixth. So he's impacted my life.
0: <laughs> mm, yeah, you get to feel all that. Yeah, I
1: do. All right, are you ready to see what this man looks like when he's mm, alive? No. <laughs> I mean, I've seen his dead body. Yes, we've definitely (laughs) all seen some rendition of his dead body. So let's look at him in happier times. (laughs) (sighs) He's not happy about it, though. No. He looks so sad. (laughs) He just... Sad puppy face.
0: He does. He has the saddest golden retriever face. (laughs) He does. It's like when, when Shadow from Homeward Bound doesn't think his master's coming home oh
1: no <laughs> the worst i don't know i kind of like it though because it does make me think of a sad puppy like it's <laughs> it's very it's very good
0: he's got the button you see nose too. like
1: poke it yeah <laughs> he looks like you could give him a boop like a dog and make him feel better. <laughs> <sighs> yeah all of that
0: man all right i can give him like a seven yeah i don't hate good. his face
1: i don't hate his face either so i'll give him an eight Which gives him a 15, which when we score out gives him a 3.75, which seems to be a very common score that we've given lately.
0: Leo the Fourth. We don't hate anyone's faces.
1: Leo the Fourth got a set 3.75. Marinus got a 3.75. Stephen the Fifth got a 3.75. And now Formosus. (laughs) Boop. (laughs) He's good for booping. All right, I have two more for you to look at, although they are, again, the same bad artist renditions and again he's sad in all of them
0: (laughs) yeah that one that one is not sad that one looks like he's got places
1: to be which one the the top the first one the first one yeah he looks more annoyed schemes to schemes (laughs) wait yes he has lots of scheming going
0: on he's even scheming in the painting look at him (laughs) he's got notes
1: he's far less of a sad puppy boy in that one for sure
0: mm uh-huh.
1: Tempus Pontificus. So, October 6th, 891, to April 4th, 896, four and a half years, a score of 1.125. Okay. Yeah. Four and a half years. And, and yet, the legacy, right? <laughs> That's great.
0: All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! do do, 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 do. No.
1: I mean excommunicated popes do not get to be saints <laughs> as we know.
0: What if he was a saint? What? What if? What if You know what? is. Yes, yes, but and, and is a and saint.
1: We do still argue that Honorius should be considered a saint, but Formosus gets to join him in that category of excommunicated popes. So, no points for him there. Mm-hmm. Which brings us to his total score, which is a very... <laughs> oh, wow. Um, <laughs> is that calculated right?
0: Not a no, 69. No, it's not. But
1: he's scored very impressively. Um, his score is a 41.875, which puts him currently in 11th place.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, okay.
1: Right. So now I need to ask you a question, Fry. and I think this one has got to have somewhat of a predetermined outcome, but I will ask you anyways, if he is popey enough and pizzazzy enough with an impact enough for a papal bull, I mean, come on.
0: Yeah, well, if I say no, someone's <laughs> oh, I gonna think somebody fight would me.
1: Definitely fight you if the, <laughs> the corpse of Formosus will come for you.
0: The ghost of Eugene will summon the
1: the corpse of Formosus. I think he would. I think, and he knows where to find it. (laughs) So yeah, I think, I think, yes. I think, of course, Formosus, as one of the most famous popes in history, even though not by his own accord, is definitely, definitely going to get a papal bull here. That seems absolutely right on track. So congratulations. <laughs> one Foremost thing. Is one good thing for you. You're in 11th place. So now with that, we have some thank yous to make at the end of our episode. So we would of course like to thank Rex Factor and Totalis Rankium for being our inspiration. And we would also like to thank our patrons who need to be absolved of their temporal punishments. So thank you very much to Jesse Holzier, Anna Wade, Sam S., and Ian Stockdale.
0: Ego te absolvo.
1: Pontifax is edited by Greg Gassman. You can find his show, Popular History, on all major podcatching platforms, and keep an eye out for his new show, Arexipod Ranking Cardinals, Cardinal Numbers. You can also reach Greg at popularhistory at gmail.com, Get it? It's popular, but with an E for the popes. And with that, that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't worry. The cadaver in it. Yeah. It's it's coming. We're we're
0: approaching quickly. Soon. High rate of speed. Speed. (laughs) (laughs) And so with that, we can say thank you. And goodbye. Goodbye. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at pontifaxpod at gmail.com. And we're PontiFacts Pod on all social media platforms. If you'd like to support the show, consider subscribing to PontiFacts on Patreon, checking out our research wish at tinyurl.com slash pontifax wishlist, or making a one-time donation at paypal.me slash pontifaxpodcast. If you'd like to support us in other ways, rating and reviewing the show on iTunes makes a world of difference. <laughs>